This morning we conclude uh, sort of a four-part sermon tour of Israel together, and um, we'll do that this morning before we head, I think, in, into parts of the Gospel of Luke in the coming weeks as those weeks lead us towards Easter. And if you're visiting with us this morning, a couple of things for you. First of all, as Jeff mentioned earlier, welcome. We're glad that you're here with us, and certainly do feel free to come and join us at the Visitor's Cafe this afternoon at 1 o'clock. The address is there on the back of your bulletin. But also, for your sake, just to explain, if this is your first time here this morning, these past few weeks, I've been giving sort of a, you could kind of call it a a tour of the Holy Land, because my wife Mary and I took a two-week tour with Covenant Seminary in January of Israel. And so that explains some of the context of what we're doing. Today we continue that tour with one of the most well-known events in Bible history. Because Israel had asked for a king ages ago, and the first man who received that role as king, Saul, had eventually failed in it. And so God had anointed a, a teenager, a young man, named David to become king in Saul's place. But that would not happen immediately. There would have to be some natural progression of events to occur before that would become officially the case. And that progression began began when the Philistine army gathered for battle on Judean territory. And King Saul and his army had encamped against them between a place called Soko and a place called Azekah in a valley called Elah. And there in that valley, a Philistine giant named Goliath from a town called Gath challenged the Israelite army, and and he called out to them, I defy the ranks of Israel. You send your best man to fight me one-on-one, and the winner will take all. And for 40 days, this challenge went on. Both morning and evening, this challenge would come to the Israelite army who failed to respond to it until David arrived on the scene. David, the the youngest of eight sons in a family, not even yet old enough for military service. And David arrived on the scene, and he had other ideas for this Philistine giant. 1 Samuel 17, verse 32 is where we'll begin. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. Then David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. 
Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Father, we pray that you would help us, that you would move by your spirit among us and in our hearts, our minds, and allow us, Lord, the privilege of seeing the beauty of your gospel here in this, your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. After five days in Jerusalem on our tour, we drove in the bus south and west from the city. And at the time, I didn't realize what we were doing, but afterwards, looking back at the map, I I noticed this, that we actually drove a path that skirted around the modern border of the West Bank and Israel. Along our left to the east was the West Bank, Palestinian territory, and along our right to the west was Israeli territory. Ironically, just exactly the opposite of the day in question in 1 Samuel 17. In that day, the Philistines occupied the western lands near the sea. Today, it's just opposite. And the modern conflict between Israeli and Palestinian in our day is is really somewhat reflective of this ancient conflict between the Israelites and the Philistines of David's day. That word Palestine is actually just the Romanized version of the word Philistine. It was a a word conversion that was made about a hundred years after the death of Christ when the Romans put the Jews out on their ear. 
So we drove on down southwest from the city, and we finally arrived after a couple of hours at a, a farming valley, just an ordinary-looking green farming valley, and the bus stopped along the side of the road. There was no parking lot. There were no gift shops, and there were no tourist brochure stands waiting for us there. We just parked along the side of the highway and got out, and we followed our guides back about 50 yards down the highway and into this valley. It's right outside of a small modern town called Beit Shemesh. And we stepped into the valley there, and our guide began to speak. He said, this hill behind me here is called Soko. And the hill across the valley over there is called Azika. And the valley between that you see is the valley of Elah. He said, this is where David killed Goliath. And immediately, we all began to scan the ground for smooth stones. <laughs> it's just what tourists do, right? And so, of course, I have in my pocket here one smooth stone. I just got one. I didn't go for five because I figured, well, I'll leave some for the rest of the people here. But then I realized afterwards, you know, for decades, tourists have been coming here and taking five smooth stones home with them. For so long, all the stones have been removed, and I'm sure that the the Israeli Parks and Rec Department comes and replaces them once a year (laughs) because they've got to keep the tourist industry moving along, right? So I have a stone here, and it's a smooth stone, and it's, it's a substantial stone. It would fit into a sling. And I can imagine that with the, the centrifugal force that a sling would generate to send the stone across the valley floor, they say probably 60 to 100 miles per hour. If it struck a large man in the head, it would be lights out. It would be lights out. And this is what David found there in that land. God called Abram into that land, telling Abram, those who bless you I will bless, and those who curse you, as Goliath cursed David, I will curse, but all nations will be blessed through you. And to bring this redemptive plan to fruition, God gave his people not just a land, but also leaders to lead them. He, He gave them prophets to bring his word. He gave them priests to intercede for his holiness, and he gave them kings as well to bring his righteous and gracious rule to bear. That's what the wise men came from the east in Matthew's gospel to find and to acknowledge. They they found the baby king in Bethlehem. It is, not coincidentally, the same town from which 970 years before, a man named Jesse had sent his youngest son on a snack run. That's what had happened. Jesse had called David, his young teenage son, to take supplies to his older brothers who were in the Valley of Elah at the battle with the Philistines. David, he said, take this rucksack full of bread and cheese and take it to your brothers and then come back and bring word to me about how they're doing. And so... David took the the sack and and hiked the 10 miles or so west down the hill from Bethlehem to the valley of Elah, and there he found his brothers. But this errand would accomplish much more than just snack relief for his brothers. 
it would, as it turns out, demonstrate the role of God's king, which is this. To use undesirable tools to do an unavoidable job by establishing an unconventional identity. Now, that's not what the Shorter Catechism says if you look up about kings. But that's what happens here in 1 Samuel 17. The king uses undesirable tools to do an unavoidable job by establishing an unconventional identity. So what about these undesirable tools? Why why does the king use undesirable tools? Well, you have to first acknowledge who is actually the king in the story here. You know, Samuel had been the judge of Israel for some decades. And he was growing old, and his sons had tried to fill the role, but they were not effective at it. And so the Israelites gathered around Samuel, and they said to him, Give us a king to lead us. Samuel wasn't pleased with that request. But the Lord spoke to Samuel and explained to him. He said to Samuel, Listen, listen to what the people are saying. It's not you, Samuel, that they're rejecting. They're rejecting me as their king. God is actually the king in the story here, isn't he? The Lord is the king. Any person fulfilling the role would just be a placeholder. That's all that a person would be in that place because every person needs redemption. Every person is undesirable to some degree or another, but the people had desired a certain thing, and so after Samuel had offered them some owner's manual type warnings about what such a a human king might bring and what he might be like for them, the people still insisted. They said, no, Samuel, we will have a king just like all the other nations, they said. What they desired is what they saw in the world around them. And that seems somewhat reasonable to us even still today, doesn't it? I mean, we kind of do the the same thing. We, We look at the world and we want what they rely on. It seems to be more desirable to us. When, when you're in middle school, you, you ROIF youthies, when, when you're in middle school, you sit in your classroom and, and you, you begin to look around at the other students in your class as the school year goes on and, and you sort of evaluate, don't you? What tools do my classmates have in their bag of tricks that they can use to make their way through life? Some of them are really smart. Some of them are really good athletes. Some of them are are very attractive physically. They, they have good looks. Some of them are funny. What kind of tools do they have? And you begin to think, I'd kind of like to have their tools to use as I make my way through life. When you're in high school, you do the same thing, right? And, and maybe it begins to take some form of, of more mature shape as you, you covet the tools that are more desirable that others in your class have. And I don't mean to discourage you, but that really doesn't change when you become an adult. Because even grown-ups look around at each other and, and they kind of evaluate and think, well, I don't have that tool that that person has. They have social connections or professional opportunities that don't come to me and, and I just wish that I had those things. I, I, they're much more desirable than what I have. And it just seems so reasonable to us, doesn't it? All those things are good things and, and the Lord can make use of them, but it's not basically what... what the king uses to do his work. David treks west from Bethlehem, and he makes his way down to the the valley of Elah, and he sees the scene there before him, and and he inquires about this 
vulgar Philistine down in the valley. He, he asks some of the other soldiers, who is this uncircumcised Philistine to speak this way? And they explain some of it to him. But his oldest brother, Eliab, overhears the conversation and gets angry with him. I mean, this is sibling rivalry here. And Eliab, the older brother, sees his youngest brother, David, questioning this as though he had some authority and and rebukes him for it. And eventually it causes such a stir that word reaches King Saul that there's a, a confident, maybe overconfident, and braggadocio teenager here in the camp who is talking about the Philistines. So Saul summons David to himself. And in verse 32, where we began, David explains to Saul and and offers to fight. And Saul very reasonably says to him, look, you can't go. You're just a youth. You're a youthy. You're not even out of the youth group yet, David. You can't go out in the valley and fight this Philistine. And so David explains to him. He says, listen, I may be just a shepherd boy, but I've killed lions and I've killed bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be just like one of them. And then he gets to verse 37. And I think I can almost imagine David shifting into a preacher kind of cadence and voice in verse 37 as he he preaches to the king here. I mean, keep in mind, this is maybe a 17-year-old youth speaking to King Saul as by now 50 years old. And David begins to preach to him. He says, listen, the Lord who delivered me from the lion and from the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. In other words, O king, I may look like an undesirable weapon for an army, but the Lord is on my side. The living God is with me, so send me out. And Saul agrees. But Saul is not accustomed to thinking like this. You have to understand Saul a bit. Saul, when he was found decades before by Samuel as the Lord led him to him, Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. And we read about Saul that he was an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites. He was a head taller than any other. In other words, Saul was an impressive specimen He was exactly what the Israelites wanted, after all. Give us an impressive specimen. Give us a king to lead us that the rest of the world will look at and covet. That's what we want. Because that's what we do when we look at them. This was Saul. But he had failed as king when he had ignored God's instructions through Samuel. And now even here he's passing the buck. He still hasn't figured out the deal. King Saul hasn't. In verse 38, Saul even clothed David with his own armor. I mean, imagine this scene. Here's the king, a veteran of some wars, and he's cowering in fear because he doesn't want to go face this Philistine giant himself, so he's willing to unarmor himself and give it to a teenage boy and send him out. This is the king that we have here. And so Saul clothes David with his own armor because, after all, you've got to have the most desirable weapons. Look at Goliath anyway. I mean, we didn't read this part earlier in the chapter, but Goliath was decked out. I mean, he was wearing a bronze helmet. He had a coat of bronze armor that we're told weighed 125 pounds. Imagine that, you youth football players with your plastic shoulder pads. 
125 pounds of bronze armor over his shoulders. He even had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin on his back, and he carried a spear that had an iron-tipped head that weighed 15 pounds. That would do some damage. Saul had all the high-tech gear of the day, and so, of course, Saul, I mean, Goliath did, so Saul is trying to prepare David with all the desirable tools, isn't he? But God's king doesn't depend on those kinds of things. And so David's sermon contains not just words here, but actually actions. In verse 39, we see that David says, I can't use these things. And so he put them off and he took his staff in hand and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and his sling was in his hand. Now, I'm not sure, I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure if this is really a legitimate exegetical move, but I'm going to make it anyway. Because I think it's a fascinating detail that you don't catch here in the chapter. A hundred years before this event took place, in the book of Judges, chapter 20, you read of an an occasion where the Israelites themselves had an internal battle brewing among themselves, and the tribe of Benjamin was the one in question. And their men gathered for battle, and among them were 700 men from Benjamin who could sling a stone at a hare and not miss. Now, some years later from this event, David himself would gather some men to himself to, to defend against King Saul. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, we read that some of those men could sling stones with either right hand or left, and they were Benjaminites, Saul's kinsmen. Now, this is the interesting thing about it. David is, in a sense, saying to Saul by his actions, you've forgotten your heritage. You Benjaminites know how to use a sling, king. And here you are decked out in all the high-tech gear that's not enough for you to face this giant. I've got your weapons, king. You don't need these high-tech tools. God gave you what you need. Trust him and sling the stones. Because God's king uses undesirable tools for his redemptive work. Why does he do that? Why does God, the king, use undesirable tools like this? Well, it's something like this. I I worked at a, a summer camp, a boys' camp in Alabama, a couple of summers years ago, and one of the camp stories from, from guys there about some other experiences was about an old camp jeep at another camp where one of these guys had worked, and the camp jeep was old, and it didn't work very well. It was, was half broken itself. But the full-time custodian there on the campgrounds used that jeep every day. The jeep was hard to start. The ignition was just quirky. You had to turn it just the right way and kind of angle the key to get it to fire up. And even then, you couldn't shift gears very well. You had to have just the right touch with the clutch in your foot to get the gears to shift, and nobody else could seem to do it but the custodian. And this one guy was there for the summer and assigned to help the custodian, and he just couldn't get the Jeep to work. And finally, he complained to the custodian's wife. He said, why doesn't Bill just get this thing fixed And his wife said, well, he doesn't fix it because the way it is, only he can drive it. Why does the king use undesirable tools? 
Why does he use undesirable weapons and instruments to do his work? Because it shows that only he can do it. You can't do it. No matter what you have or don't have, only he can do it. You know, you go about your, your life getting things in order and, and trying to, to set yourself up just right with the right instruments and, and supplies so that you can be useful. But the instruments and the weapons and the tools that this king uses, though undesirable in the eyes of the world, are effective in his hand. And he uses them to do an unavoidable job. Okay, so David identified that job as soon as he arrived on the scene in the Valley of Elah. He said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David uses there, the the author of of Samuel, writing about David, uses there a, a Hebrew word that's translated to defy or to disdain. And the author inserts a thematic element to what's happening here because he uses that word six times throughout the chapter. We only saw half of them in what we read, but I'll summarize them for you. In verse 10, Goliath himself had stepped out onto the battlefield and he said himself, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. In verse 25, the soldiers over on the side of the battlefield, on Israel's side, reflecting on that, they said, this Goliath has come up To defy Israel. And in verse 26, David, speaking to the soldiers, said, Who is this man that he should defy the armies of the living God? And in verse 36, David, speaking to Saul, said, This man has defied the armies of the living God. And in verse 42, sorry, it's getting repetitive, isn't it? Goliath himself, when he looked down and saw David, he disdained him. He defied him. And verse 45, David, directly to Goliath, you have defied the Lord of hosts. This world, both then, 3,000 years ago, and now, is very complicated. It's, It's very complex. I realize that. It's very complex. There are wars between countries. There are fights between parties. There are conflicts between individuals. There are even battles raging inside your own soul. I realize that this world is very complex. And despite the inestimable complexity of all of those things, they all actually come down to just one reason. Defiance of the living God. Disdain for the one who made all things. And the defeat of that defiance, the dismantling of that disdain, is the unavoidable job of this king. It's easy enough, you know, for us to to look out at the world and, and to see how they, how those people, defy and disdain God. After all, as Paul wrote in Romans, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
That's all true. It doesn't take much to look at this world with all of the, 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 the side stories and the headlines that you see every day and realize that those things are true. But the harder part of it is to see that defiance in yourself. When I was first becoming an RUF intern back in 1994 before I had gone to seminary, I went to my first of many RUF staff training gatherings in Jackson, Mississippi at a seminary there, RTS seminary there, and we gathered in a classroom to talk about ministry and, and, and the Bible and ourselves, to understand ourselves better in the context of doing ministry. And one of the exercises that our leader uh, engaged us in was a personality profile test, which many of you have taken those sorts. There are all kinds of, of those out there. And this particular one was a very simple one. And we came along to, to one of the four personality profiles uh, that, that was characterized by, by a person being dominant and overbearing and, and ruling people. And the leader asked for people to raise their hands. You know, did, who, have, who have you had this characteristic coming up in your analysis? And, and some people raised their hands. And so the leader, in his kind of fun and salty sort of way, began to kind of make fun and, and give some examples about how this shows up in, in you people and how you see this dominant, sort of defiant character. And that was one of the words that came up. And from the back of the room, one of, one of the guys back there who had raised his hand was becoming kind of agitated at all because there was a lot of negative that was coming up in the description. And he finally slammed his hand on the table and he said, I'm not defiant. <laughs> and at that very moment, he realized the irony of what he said. And, and the rest of us did what you did. We laughed at him because it was just so obvious to us. Sometimes the hardest part for us is to see the defiance in our own souls. And, you know, when you read and hear the story of David and Goliath, you know, again, for maybe the hundredth time, you know, you, you hear it, and, and maybe your natural response is to say, okay, I remember this again, and, and I know I haven't been facing my giants with much courage, and, and I know I can do better, I know I can be more brave. I know I can show more resolve to take on my own problems just like David did. Do you know what you're doing when you do that? You are defying the living God. You are disdaining the one who made you because you have mistaken this account for a fable. What is a fable? A fable is a, a short story with a moral lesson. It's a very popular literary device. And it's a story that, that usually involves characters that shouldn't exist or characters that certainly shouldn't speak, things like speaking animals or giants. And we want to take this and make it into a fable, but this is not a fable. It's actually a picture of the gospel. How? How do we know that? We know that because of how the king goes about his job. He does it by establishing an unconventional identity. Now, in American culture, think about this for a moment with me. In American culture, when you witness an event like this one or something similar, what part of it, what detail do most people most readily and conventionally identify with? 
What's the most conventional part for you to take hold of and say, yeah, okay, I want to be that? It's the underdog, right? I mean, that's what we as Americans certainly do, and I suppose it's probably more universally dominant than, than even that. Last March, when Villanova upset North Carolina in the NCAA basketball March Madness tournament on a last-second three-point shot, even some of us families who are inclined more towards Carolina, like my own, had to feel a soft spot in our heart for the underdog. You know you did. And two weeks from now, you're going to fill out another bracket for the March Madness tournament. I know you are. And if if you don't think you are, you ought to. And when you do, you probably, I would guess, are going to pick the champion from among the top-ranked teams because that's just sort of the smart thing to do. But in the midst of all of your bracket, you're going to pick some upsets, aren't you? Because you know they're going to happen. You know the underdog is going to win some of these games. And you really want for the underdog to win, don't you? Because you identify with the underdog. You have a soft spot in your heart for the underdog. Now, look at this story here. It's obvious, isn't it? Goliath was equipped with all the armor and the battle weapons that any ordinary soldier might have in a case like this. David was just a kid, and he had a sling and a stone. The conventional identification to make in this moment is with the underdog. I want to be like David. I want to fight my own giants. I want to face them down with bravery and courage, just like David did. It's just the conventional thing for us to do. But it's not a fable. Goliath is not a metaphor for your problems. And David is not a metaphor for you. Who in this story should you identify with? Because you should. I mean, it's, it's given as a picture of the gospel, as a historical account, and you should identify with some particular part of this story. But to know, you have to recognize a tactic that occasionally was used in ancient battles like this one. Goliath was a large man, apparently, but more importantly than that, he was the champion of his army. That means that he was the one man who was selected to represent, to to fight on behalf of the whole army. And that one man, if he were to win, would win for the whole army. And if he were to lose, he would lose for the whole army. It was an efficient and clean way to wage battle. I mean, think about how many lives it saved and the losers became slaves. And so David takes on a role here that is simply not offered to you and me. It's just not offered to us. He takes on the role of the champion of Israel. He is the one man selected to represent and fight on behalf of the whole army here. And so... Who should you identify with in the story? The fear-quaking soldiers on the sidelines. The rest of the army that's sitting off to the side for 40 days refusing to go out and face this guy. That's who we identify with. Or even the families in Israel who are waiting back at home, waiting for word from the battlefield to find out, are we free or are we slaves? Those are the ones that we identify with. And now the, the, the fear-quaking soldiers and the families at home, that might be an unexpected identity from the story for us, 
But the unconventional identity is actually much better. What is it? In the book of Hebrews, you might recall that famous chapter in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith as we call it, where where the writer lists out all these Old Testament characters. By faith, Abraham obeyed God and left his homeland. By faith, Moses chose to be mistreated with Israel rather than to indulge in the pleasures of Pharaoh's house. And by faith, David conquered kingdoms and enforced justice and escaped the edge of the sword. And the writer goes on to explain that all of these are to be commended to you. Therefore, you also run the race with endurance as it's set before you. But what does he say? As you run, set your eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now, the word that the writer of Hebrews uses there is is a Greek word, archegon, which means champion. Set your eyes on the champion of your army, on the one who's gone out for you, on the one who represents you and fights for you. Set your eyes on the one whose hopes are your hopes, on the one whose strength is your strength, on the one whose righteousness is your righteousness. Set your eyes on him. Our king doesn't deal with our problems by by simply giving battle charges for inspiration or even by giving examples for our imitation. He deals with our problems, rather, by way of substitution and imputation. He, He sends a champion in our place as a substitute. And all that that champion was and did is credited to us by imputation. 970 years after this battle took place in the Valley of Elah, long after the blood was gone and the the bodies were gone and Goliath was history, 970 years later, the true champion would be born in Bethlehem, just 10 miles up the hill from the valley. And another vulgar giant named Herod, would seek to destroy him, would seek to defy him, would disdain his very existence on the earth. And that gives you some sense of the reality of what this story is. That David foreshadowed Christ by going into that valley in the shadow of death. But Jesus would go straight on into death itself. And by way of his resurrection, he has defeated the enemy who defies God. God had a plan to redeem, and it was as real and as earthy as a land itself. And so he gave that land through Abraham. And to make his plan clear, he gave his word through the work of the prophets. And to make his plan possible, he created a path through the work of the priests. And to make his plan sure, he completed a job through the work of the kings. And because of the grace of God in Jesus, that redemptive plan is your hope. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. O Lord, we give you thanks for your word to us, and for how you have called us to believe and to recognize your work through all of history 
that you have been accomplishing the task of redemption for your people and that you have been calling your people to believe and to follow after you in Jesus. And so, Father, we pray that this morning you would grant to us increased faith to do that, to recognize our own defiant hearts and to turn away from that and to trust in the righteousness of our champion, Jesus, your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.